Uh, this is our last installment of success, uh, Suggestions for Successful Summer, and um, we're going to look into this. And the text that we're using this morning um, is from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, and verses 34 to 40. Let's stand together. We just got two slides today uh, that we're going to read, and I'm going to read the yellow, and uh, you're going to read the white, and this is what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us and have showed it so dramatically, so generously, so extravagantly in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you have accomplished in Christ and made it available and applicable to our lives. And so we ask now that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ would indwell us and that you would give us a voice to speak, you would give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and particularly as we leave this place, that we go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our places of work and recreation, and Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to live out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, over the last seven weeks, we have been talking about suggestions for a successful summer. And uh, last week, we started sort of A and B, our last installment on relationships. And if you remember, if you were here, or if you watched online, or if you want to watch online later on the archive, then we, first of all, last week talked about managing high-maintenance relationship. And then we talked about maintaining our low-maintenance relationships. And so we sort of focused last week on ourselves from Mark's gospel, but really the same text. And so this week we're going to focus on friendship. We're going to focus on forgiveness and loving our neighbors. Now, When we talk about friendship, and we talk about friendships, maybe, there we go, what characteristics, what traits, actions, behaviors do we appreciate or do we associate with friendship? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to think about this. One of the most paradoxical things about human beings is not just our enormous capacity for generosity and selfless love, but that those things are matched by an equally astounding capacity for cruelty, for greed, and for destructiveness. To be human. To be human beings. To be us is to carry the seed of great good and yet great evil. To be people of great light and yet great darkness. To be people of great creativity and yet 
great destructiveness. While human beings, while we have produced the art of the Sistine Chapel and the beautiful music that fills concert halls all around the world and the pyramids of Egypt in the last 100 years, we have also committed acts of genocide and mass murder that has resulted in the deaths of over 250 million people. So on the one hand, we have the Nelson Mandela's and the Mother Teresa's, but on the other hand, we have the Joseph Stalin's and the Adolf Hitler's. For every person who squanders his or her life spreading selfless love, we have those who destroy their own lives and the lives of countless others with their hatred and with their destruction. Someone was asked, what surprises them most about humanity? And of course, they said this, and forgive the gender in this. Man sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recruit his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die, and then he dies, never really having lived. We human beings are full of shocking irrationalities and surprising contradictions. On the one hand, we would think by what we know about the inconsistencies of humanity and what it means to be human that we and God would have given up on us a long time ago, but we haven't, have we? On the other hand, just when we think that we understand and know our most predictable friend, he or she expresses an opinion that seems so totally out of character or they disclose a bit of personal history that surprises us, or does something that just doesn't fit with who they are. In one sense, it's our inconsistencies that make us so interesting. I mean, just imagine how boring we would all be if we all behaved the way that we should behave in a sort of predictable and consistent manner, I, I, I think that that would be pretty boring. But the truth is that we really don't know much about ourselves if we really think that we are all that predictable. Now, you and I have both heard the saying, right, that uh, our past behavior predicts our future performance. And psychologists tell us that the way that we behaved in the past is probably one of the best factors or sets of factors that will tell us how we're going to behave in the future. Now, just let your mind settle on that for a moment. Who you have been in the past, who I have been in the past, who you've been in the past, pretty much seals the deal on who you will be in the future. Now, I'm assuming that we're all Christians and the salvation experience has, has happened. That's a life change event. But as Christians, pretty much who I am, have been in the past, is who I'm going to be in the future. 
That brings us to this, what I call enemies within and without. Now, I took the time to go to dictionary.com and look up the word friendliness. And I came up with seven different definitions. First of all, is friendliness is a characteristic of or befitting a friend showing friendliness. Number two, friendliness like a friend, kind and helpful, like somebody who gives friendly advice. The third one is somebody who is favorably disposed, inclined to approve help or support. And the dictionary.com gave the illustration of a friendly bank. I'll leave that with you. Number four, not hostile or at variance, but amicable. And dictionary.com gave this illustration, a friendly warship. There's an oxymoron, like friendly fire. And then number five caught me off guard until I understood what it said. It said, uh, easy to use. That doesn't mean that your friends are easy to use. It's the idea of being something that's uh, user-friendly, like a manual, uh, M-A-N-U-A-L. Okay? And then number six says, able to coexist with something without harm or trouble. And then the last one really caught my attention. An attribute of being favorably disposed, to, de, de, disposed toward others, particularly strangers. Now, the seventh definition is interesting because many times we operate with suspicion toward strangers. Now, when our kids were small... There was a whole uh, series of TV ads that went out. I don't know if they still go out or not. Uh, talking about stranger danger. I remember once I was in a chapters and I, I, I'm just being myself, minding my own business, and I'm a nice guy. I'm not a threat to anybody, I don't think. And there was this little girl, the cute as a button, and uh, I said to her, Hi, how are you? And immediately she screamed. And all of a sudden I realized that I was stranger danger. But I'm talking about adults. On the one hand, we understand and appreciate this business of danger. We, we get it. We understand it. But on the other hand, suspicion is one of those enemies that works against friendliness or friendship. Another enemy of friendship, of course, is fear. Now, fear has become a real issue because we are living in a time where we are seeing a, an increase in violence in public, and even in the city of Toronto in the last few months, it's been pretty serious. But I think what we need to keep in mind is that this is still God's good world. There's a lot of good in our world, and there's a, a lot of good in people. Not everybody we need to be afraid of and be near, fearful. One of the other enemies, I think, of friendship is mobility. We live in a very transit society. We are always on the move. And so we are less inclined to be friendly because we really don't know who our neighbors are. And we have the resources to be mobile. We can afford to go down south on a regular basis. We can afford to travel because we have that luxury, most of us. But a few years ago, a guy by the name of Richard Swenson in, in reminded us of the importance of having margins in our lives and the dangers of living our lives without margins. 
And he said that living marginless lives, whether it's our calendars, where there are maxed to the point with us and with our children, that there's absolutely no room at the end of our day, at the end of our week, at the end of our month, at the end of our year, to include anybody else but our immediate family. Or for some reason we, we, we just go and go and go, and he says that marginless living is like always running on empty. Eventually, he says, it will catch up to us. Coupled together, of course, with mobility is this business of busyness. Now, we know that friendships, like all relationships, takes time. And because they take time, for that very reason, relationships and friendships are very inefficient in our culture. We live in a bottom-line culture where the, 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 the line at the end of the uh, balance sheet is the one that matters. But one of the problems of living in a culture where the bottom line is the, is the be-all and end-all is that there are certain trade-offs, and one of those trade-offs is relationships. But friends, not everything in life that matters is countable. Not everything in life that actually adds up to something is quantifiable. That just hanging out is not always a waste of time. Now, we could add to these, of course, the, the enemy of impersonalness. Now, I don't know if this is a word, but my, uh, when I typed it in, my um, spell checker went crazy. So for those... Um, um, English language uh, perfectionist, you might be right, this may not be a word, but there it is. Impersonalness and the social alienation that comes with it. That once upon a time, we lived our whole lives in community. But now, we move from place to place to place. So let me ask you a question. How many of us in the room you have spent the last 40 years in the city of Sudbury. That's if you're over 40. Okay, how many of you have lived the last 25 years in the city of Sudbury? Raise your hands. Nice and high. We won't hold it against you. Okay. How many of you have lived the last 15 years in the city of Sudbury? 10? Five. Less than five. Me. Look around. Less than five. Raise your hands. Less than five. Okay. <clears throat> interesting. Very interesting that we understand that we move. How many of you have moved in the last five years have moved more than three times? Raise your hand. Okay, not bad. You know what I discovered in the city of Sudbury? The city of Sudbury, and I know that there were a difference of opinions. I, I, I saw the hands. But what I've noticed, what I've noticed on a personal level, uh, and certainly this is not any, any sort of uh, academic research or anything like that, that's for sure. Uh, but on a personal level, I've noticed that Sudbury must be one of the last cities in the world, or cities in Canada, not in the world, in Canada, where you have multiple, multi-generational families 
where you have grandparents, mom and dad, and children, and sometimes great-grandchildren, four generations in the same city because you can actually grow up here, you can actually go to school here, get a great education, and get a decent job, and that seems to perpetuate. But I think Sudbury is one of the places where that's more evident than other places. But how do we establish community? In a world where we have these things working against us. How do we do that? You've heard the slogan, and it's well-worn, and it's worn out, and it's well-known. It's all about relationships. How many of you recognize it's all about relationships? Well, the truth is, it really is. We all know that uh, whether we like it or not, it is true. It is all about relationships. We all know that as as many people that have pointed it out that everything and everyone is hitched to everything and everyone else. Have you ever heard of six degrees of separation? You know what six six degrees of separation are, right? Uh, Basically, it goes like this, that you can go anywhere in the world, and in every person, there is somebody within six people that know you between the, the person that is the stranger to you. You know what that tells me, right? Is that you better be very careful. Ever been in a room and you've had a conversation about somebody and you never think in your mind that you're ever, if there's any connection and somebody in the conversation says, oh, I know that person, they're my cousin. And you're looking back in the conversation thinking what you said. So in a world of six degrees of separation where everything and everyone is connected, you've got to be careful who you talk about. But it's true nevertheless. That everyone that exists, all of us, we do so in a network of relationships. And we need to understand that. Take, for example, our relationship with our environment. Now, here's something. Did you know, did you know that people working in buildings with daylight experience less illness and absenteeism than those who work in artificial lighting? Did you know that? Now, the same is true with our personal relationships. Did you know that people with many friends catch fewer colds and manage stress better than those who have few friends? Did you know that as we age, people with many friends are less likely to develop dementia or experience or rather, or experience decline in motor functions such as walking, gripping, and balancing. Did you know that for all people of all ages, every, even 10 minutes, even 10 minutes of talking with somebody each day, even if it's on the phone, boosts mental performance and emotional well-being? And did you know that long-term and mature interpersonal relationships, even as a significant and direct effect on the strength of our immune system. And did you know that people with more than, people with more friends, people who have an abundance of friends, are four times less likely to come down with a cold after receiving a, a direct injection of the cold virus. Now, you couldn't have possibly known all that because I didn't know it until this week. Now, the last enemy is narcissism. Now, narcissism is basically me first. 
Now, I think because of our fallenness, all of us have a low grade of narcissistic behavior. That life is all about me. Now, narcissism, in truth, is is an inordinate level of self-affirmation. And I think this could be identified in the world of selfies. Excessive self-love is narcissism. Fascination with oneself is narcissistic. When the world revolves around me and I am the center of the universe, that's narcissism. And I think that we can see in our culture, particularly in the West, particularly in North America, we can see the rise of narcissism, narcissism increasing. There are a number of books actually that come out that's pretty fascinating about this whole subject. But that's not where we're going to go today. I wonder how Jesus would have managed friendships and friendliness in our culture. I, I often wonder, what would, how would Jesus have acted if he had lived in Sudbury in 2018? Now, we, we have no way, of course, of knowing that. It's totally speculation. But what we do know, what we do know from the Scriptures is the example of Jesus and how it is that Jesus dealt with friendships and relationships and people in the New Testament. And here's what we know. That first of all, Jesus countered suspicion with proximity. In other words, he got where the people were. Matter of fact, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, and I'm just reading one section, says where Jesus is going in and he's eating with the Pharisees and the sinners, and the self-righteous crew come along and say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what I've discovered is that in the Gospels is that sinners liked Jesus. Jesus wasn't a stick in the mud. Jesus had a sense of humor, I believe. Jesus had a sense of something that sinners were attracted to him. Let me ask you this question. Do you think sinners would like us? Do you think sinners would like me? Don't answer that question. I'm not that secure. Do you think sinners would like you? And the room fell silent. I'll leave that with you. Jesus countered fear with gentleness. Gentleness is a disposition to behave tenderly. I like that word, tenderly, toward others. In Matthew's Gospel, and we know these words, if we've been around the Bible at all or we've been to church at all, we know these words where Jesus says, Come to me, for I am gentle. Thanks for the sound effect. Come to me, for I am gentle, and you will find rest for your soul. There's a text in Philippians says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all. And then one of my favorite texts in the Bible is this one. But in your hearts, 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And here it is. This is why I love it. I love the first part because it just says, this is who we are. I I am a Christ follower. I belong to Jesus. But the last part says, do it with gentleness and respect. So do you think sinners would like us? You think sinners would like you? Do you think sinners would like me? And then, of course, Jesus answered mobility with opportunity and compassion. Matthew says these words when he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Did you know that in the Gospels there are nine occasions where the Bible says that Jesus had compassion. Folks, this is what I've learned. I have learned that a lot of people carry a lot of burdens. And I wonder sometimes, for us as Christians, how do we approach them? Do we follow the model of Jesus where we approach an opportunity with compassion? Or are we just too busy and we roll on or we just don't? Compassion for Jesus was not just a was not just a shared pain thing, but compassion was a redemptive action. A redemptive action involving personal contact. And then Jesus, of course, answered busyness with patience, friendships relationships require a willingness to go slow and wait without complaint and and you know this we know this i mean this is so old we 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 listen to it and we just move on one of the gifts of the spirit is patience patience and then jesus of course answered in personality with hospitality we've already talked about it but in matthew 11 where it says, come to me, come to me. Jesus was incredibly considerate and kind. And then the last one is that Jesus answered narcissism with humility. Now here's something. You probably know this, but I'll tell you again. Do you know that in the world that Jesus was born into and grew up in and ministered in and died in was the Roman Empire? And one of the things that the Romans did not have was an understanding of humility as a virtue. Humility for the Romans was something that was born out of weakness. If you had humility or you were a humble person, then you were considered to be a weak individual. And it wasn't until Jesus came along and Christianity came along that the idea of humility being a virtue was introduced to the Roman world and was actually introduced to the world. And that's why Philippians says these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm going to say something here that may surprise some of you. I've been thinking a lot about this concept of relationships. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about it for a couple of months. And one of the things that I am trying to do, I, I, I know what I believe, and I think my theology and is pretty solid. But one of the things I'm beginning to learn is this, is that I am trying to hold what I believe in humility and not confuse my beliefs with the truths with the truth, capital T. Let me say it again. I am trying to hold what I believe with humility and not confuse what I believe with the truth. Now, here's what I mean. I'm not talking about the non-negotiables like who Jesus is and the Trinity and the Bible. I'm not talking about that at all. But here's what I do know. With all that I have learned and all that I know, and after 33 years of pastoral ministry and 57 years of life, I know some stuff. But I also know that some of the stuff that I know is wrong. In other words, I do not have it all right. Correct. And we, as Glad Tidings Church, we don't have it all right. Some of the things that we believe are not accurate. But then again, the Presbyterians don't have it all right, and the Catholics don't have it all right, and the Methodists don't have it all Nobody has it all right. They, nobody has it completely correct. And I'm beginning to learn that I need to hold what I believe in humility. Because I could be wrong on some things and not confuse what I believe with the truth because I'm not the Bible and I'm not Jesus I'm just a human being with unpredictability something for us to think about and that brings us then to this that's why we need to be moving forward together in Forgiveness-based relationships. Because we could be wrong. And here's something. I don't know if you know this. But one of the things that talks about this business, first of all, of moving forward together. Moving forward together. Is the one another statements in the New Testament. Did you know that there are 43 one another statements in the New Testament. 43 one another statements in the New Testament. Now, you've heard me say this before. If a thing is repeated in the Bible, then we should pay attention to it. If it's repeated more than once or twice, we should pay particular attention to it. When it's repeated 43 times in the New Testament, I think the Bible might be trying to tell us something about moving forward together. But let me finish with this. We cannot talk about moving forward together and the fact that we human beings could be wrong on some things and that we are certainly inconsistent and unpredictable at times. We can't do all of those things without dealing with forgiveness. Forgiveness. Lewis Schmid says this, 
He says, and by the way, the spelling is, uh, oh, it's accurate on here, but it's wrong in your notes. Forgiveness is a redemptive response to having been wronged and wounded. Forgiveness is a redemptive response to having been wronged and wounded. Now, I don't know if you like the kind of music that Leonard Cohen writes or sings, and some of it is great and some of it is whatever. But of course, he wrote this song called The Anthem, and it's become famous because of the one line. And it goes like this, ring the bells that can ring, sorry, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything, and we might add in everyone. That's how the light gets in. Now, Paul puts it differently. Paul says these words, for we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And the late Irma Bombeck said this, that she said that we are all just a bunch of cracked pots. Cracked pots. It's our brokenness. It's my brokenness that allows the light of God's love and God's presence and God's grace to come into my life. It is also my brokenness that allows God's presence, God's love, and God's grace to come flow out of my life. Somebody said, people will appreciate your strength, but they will identify with your weaknesses. Do you ever notice, do you ever notice in your life, in my life, in our lives, that growth usually takes place when we're in crisis, when we're in difficulty, when we're broken, that's how the light gets in. Do you ever notice that we never really grow and we really, you know, we, we are aware of God is in our lives, but we really don't appreciate his closeness and, and the need of his, of his nearness than when we are experiencing crisis. David Benner said, perfection is not the elimination of imperfection, but the ability to recognize, forgive, and include it. So what do we need to do? Four things very quickly, and then I'll finish with the story. We need to forgive forgive others because Jesus forgave us. That's the baseline right there. We know it. We've heard it so many times. We're tired of hearing it. We gloss over it. But we forgive because Jesus forgave us. Nelson Mandela said to President Obama while discussing the weight of the mantle that was on him when he was alive, and he said, don't consider me a saint unless you consider a saint, some, unless you consider a saint nothing more than a sinner who keeps trying. And forgiveness is a process. Depending, now, we know that forgiveness is an event. You slap me across the face, and I'll forgive you, Justin. But depending on the violation, depending on the violation, forgiveness sometimes is a process. It's not always an event. 
It's a process. And then, of course, forgiveness surrenders our right to get even. Forgiveness surrenders my right to get even. And then the last one is this, that ideally, forgiveness leads to reconciliation. There's a parable out of the Middle East about two friends who were walking in the desert together. And they got into an argument. And the first friend reaches across and slaps the second friend across the face. And hurt, he says, well, why did you do that? And he gave some answer, but the friend then automatically wrote in the sand, in the desert. Today, my best friend slapped me across the They were walking on and they came to an oasis with a beautiful body of water. A beautiful body of water. They decided that they would go swimming and sort of take a bath, but the friend that got slapped across the face started to drown. And his best friend who had slapped him across the face saved him. And immediately he found a stone the friend who was saved, and said, and wrote on it, today, my best friend saved my life. Now, his best friend who slapped him and saved him from drowning said to him, why, what are you doing? Like, why did you write in the sand when I slapped you across the face? And then why did you write on the stone when I saved your life? And the friend who was slapped and almost drowned, he said this, when somebody hurts you, we should write it down in sand where the winds of forgiveness can erase it away. But when somebody does something good for us, we must engrave it in stone where no wind can ever erase it. We write our hurts in the sand. And we engrave or carve our benefits in stone. I'm going to ask Carla to come and the team. And Carla, the song that we sang through it all. Richard Rohr said this. See everything. Judge little. And forgive much. What kind of friends would we be if we saw everything, judged little, and forgave much? What kind of friends would other people be to us if they saw everything, judged little, and forgave lots? And what kind of Christ followers would we be in our marriages, in our families, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, where we go to school, where we get our services, and the list goes on and on where we live our lives. If every one of us saw everything, judged little, and forgave much. Wouldn't that be some world? Forget the world. Wouldn't that be some church?
where we saw everything. Judge little and forgave much. I want you to stand. Father, we pause now because what we are asking now is huge. Matter of fact, this can only happen by the transforming resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We know that there's some good in us. We know that we can at times judge a little bit, but at times we judge a lot. And sometimes we can forgive, but sometimes our forgiveness doesn't go very far. And so we need the help and the grace, the love, and the wisdom and the endurance of the Holy Spirit. Father, today, in the room, online, and those that will watch it on the archive in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, Lord, in our minds right now, there may be the name of a person. There may be a situation that's come to our minds. And this, of course, is what your spirit does. It brings these things, these people to us. That there are emotional IOUs, outstanding issues in relationships, maybe even with one another, even with family members. Help us Help us, we pray, to be people of forgiveness. And for those that are struggling because the violation is so gross and it's so deep, we ask that you would help us, and those of us that are in those situations, to enter into the process of forgiveness. And Father... We're all broken. We're all cracked. And some of us, our brokenness and our crackedness is not it's quite evident, not as evident today as it is at other times. We're doing okay. But there are people in the room, people watching online, who are in the midst of brokenness. They're in the midst of the crack becoming so obvious. But Lord, as their brokenness becomes more obvious, the light will come in. And the light then will go out. So Father, today, in these quiet moments, as we just reflect, contemplate, think, as we listen to these words, we ask that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our lives, in our midst.